Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Tracy Beth Haug. She's an epidemiologist and a sports medicine doctor, and she's one of the authors of a new paper that came out in the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Reports of the CDC that looks at the Wisconsin experience on schools and finds, surprise, surprise, it's safe and you better open them. You won't want to miss this discussion. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, I'm back in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by Tracy Beth Hogue. Uh, Dr. Hogue is a sports medicine physician. She's also an epidemiologist, and she's the author of a very new and interesting study about the Wisconsin experience and opening schools in the time of COVID. Dr. Hogue, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, Vinay. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I really love your show. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, your Twitter account, um, and I have to <laughs> applaud you because, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm I'm drawn to this issue as a policy question, but I think it's probably in retrospect will be probably the most important question um, that we have faced throughout the pandemic, which is, you know, when and how and under what circumstances can we open schools? And I would say, you know, listeners of this podcast will know where I stand on this issue. I mean, they've heard me to death on it. I wonder if you might talk about, you know, I guess your background is in, we were talking just a minute before we came on, and your background, of course, you're a physician, you're a PM&R doc, you do sports medicine. You also have trained in epidemiology. You've done epidemiology work. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about where you were when COVID struck and some of your initial thoughts on the response and, and schools, and then maybe a little bit, then I'll, then I'll ask you how you kind of got into this kind of um, work and up to the recent paper. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So, um, yeah, I, I work um, in sports medicine in Grass Valley, and, and, and that's where I was working when all of this started. And um, was watching very carefully from China, and very early on, I was a proponent, actually, of locking down and, and uh, shutting down schools and mm-hmm. There, interestingly enough, there was actually a case in a teacher in one of my kids' schools. Mm. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, that's crazy that, and she ended up dying. Um, oh, and, wow. mm-hmm. and then it was learned a couple of weeks later that she didn't contract it in school. She contracted it in church. Um, oh, and then mm-hmm. that was kind of the first kind of thing that caught my interest. And I thought, well, that's a little bit weird because no one ever followed up on that. And everyone always said she caught it in school, but actually she didn't. Um, And then I was, you know, following closely in the spring, what was happening with schools. Um, Well, I have, I have four kids and, um, and if that's an obvious reason I was following it, but also because Denmark was really the first country in the world to open up their schools. And that was on April 15th. Sweden had kept them open all along, but Denmark locked down Mm -hmm. a very strict lockdown. And the first thing they opened up was their elementary schools. Mm -hmm. And because um, I'm Danish, I was following that closely. And we watched the Danish news um, in our, in our house. um, And, 
And they were able to do it opening up with 6.9% test positivity rate at the time. And after that, the cases just plummeted. And the whole society basically rallied around opening up the schools. And they actually opened up like Tivoli theme park to hold the schools wow. there. Yeah. And Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts clubs. And they got so they were able to get the kids in situations where you know, there was enough space between them and they spent a lot of time outdoors and they were really creative about it. And it worked so well because they really didn't have any transmission from opening up the schools. Like mm -hmm. I said, the cases just went went down from there. And but the Scandinavian society, they prioritize kids i've ah, learned yes. in a different way yes. than than our country yes. does so so yeah they started with the grade school then they went to the secondary schools to open those up same story and then they opened up the rest of the economy and and we'll probably get to this but interestingly enough they were not wearing masks in the schools all along until around october and now i think it's still just ages 12 and over they're 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 wearing masks now um so it's it's been a really different approach there and actually De denmark has been really different from sweden too which a lot of people don't know but mm. so i see so this is i mean i i've also followed that with interest i thought it was you know i i talked to um a colleague in switzerland and he basically told me something very similar that switzerland had a a stop for four to six weeks but then schools resumed rather quickly um and and that is the experience i think across europe which is that europe has prioritized schools and made much more of a concerted effort to reopen schools and of course this was a time of uncertainty but we were rapidly learning in march and april and may um that thankfully um the virus which is extremely lethal in older american and older people um is a thankfully orders of magnitude um log fold less lethal in children and we're talking about you know a jama paper that came out in the fall that i think looked at the experience from march to october found that one in a million children during that time um passed away of sars-cov-2 um whereas it was 7,500 times higher in 80-year-olds. Um, so school was certainly safe to kids. Um, and these other nations, I think, that realize that school is an important thing for children, for their lives, for their mental health, for their well-being, um, for hot meal. Um, so now tell us, so, you know, in this country, of course, we went into shutdown and things were probably shut down until the school year ended and the summertime came. Um, then, you know, um, in California, the case rates were rather low in the summertime. Um, and tell me what was going on, um, in your thinking, you know, as fall was approaching, as we reached July and August, um, uh, what was going on? What were you keeping an eye on and what was the reality, you know, where you are? Right. Yeah. So, so at that point I had been following the studies coming out of Europe that were showing sort of very strange things that not only were children, not you know, being severely affected by it, but they weren't, they didn't appear to be transmitting it like adults were like kids before lockdown started who had, you know, 188 contacts who had COVID who didn't spread it to anyone. I don't know if you saw that out of France, but that was sort of an interesting first one. And then, right. you know, there were multiple reports of schools that before they locked down, like in Ireland, that they, they also didn't see any transmission. And then, um, so it and and then we were looking at the schools that had been opening and the some data from Asia and it was just looking like kids weren't really transmitting this like adults and it was hard to understand why if it was just something with the school setting um, 
or, you know, if it's the ACE2 receptors. And I think we still don't really understand why it might be that right. children are, are transmitting it less. But, but even in, uh, then, o- over the summer, they were, you know, reporting from Europe that kids weren't transmitting it to teachers, which was just so strange. And, and I don't know how much you might have followed along with the, the Dutch experience, but they have a very good website where they've been reporting all along what's been going on in their schools. And they really have not been doing much distancing, not really any masking, and they were not finding cases being linked to schools. Um, And so they were doing a little bit more distancing in the older ages, but they, from the beginning, were noticing if spread was happening, it seemed to be from the teachers to the students. Um, And that was kind of what they were watching out for. And so you know, in the it was July 11th, actually, I kind of put together all the data that I had analyzed. And I know you kind of did the same thing at, at the same time in July. You kind of were looking well, at the I data. I was a little and- behind you, but yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I made this really long post on Facebook. See, I used to be a lot more on Facebook and I'm kind of relatively new to Twitter. But um, uh, and I was talking about how I thought that schools, you know, we really should be opening schools. It was the two things were coming together. The kids weren't spreading it a lot. And teachers appeared to be relatively safe when they were around the kids. And we just need to keep the teachers away from each other. And then the, the other issues of kids are not going to be learning, doing virtual learning, the mental health issues. I mean, I was talking about all that back then. And 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 it was shared like 22,000 times. And wow. suddenly all these people that I didn't know knew who I was, which was very bizarre. Um, but but then um, but then it was when was it the end of July when our uh, former president said, we need to open all the schools. Yes. <laughs> and then everyone who loved my post hated me because uh-huh. like they they were like, why? How can you want to open schools? You're right about everything that you've, you've taught us about the pandemic and all the data you shared, but what you're sharing about schools is wrong. And I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. So you felt so, it quite viscerally, this, um, you know, I think many of us have noted this um, feeling that, um, you know, the moment he said that, a lot of people did would never could never come around to that idea simply because he endorsed it. He said it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it might have been the worst thing that happening for the school openings. I don't know, but wow. but yeah. <laughs> so then the fall came, and in your area there were no schools. Okay, so that's another great okay. question. So we didn't really know what was happening in our public school district um, until like you know, days before the schools were opening. Maybe, I think they maybe, maybe it was two weeks before. And then we're in the SCUSD, so the Sacramento um, school district. And then they said, okay, it's going to be virtual. And, you know, I watched their little orientation. And at that time I said to my husband, this is going to last a long time. Like Mm -hmm. we are not going back anytime soon. (laughs) So, so I I had been actually advising the Catholic schools in the area or been helping to about how to reopen safely at that time. And I had been watching what was happening with them and they were actually open for summer school all summer and they hadn't had any cases. And so we decided to move our kids to Catholic school after about a month and a half because um, so both of our, so I have two step kids that are older and then two younger kids and um, both of the younger kids, um, you know, they were getting Fs um, in school. And, you know, my husband and I are both physicians, so we couldn't 
facilitate their learning. We just didn't want to quit our jobs to do that. And, you know, one was getting migraine headaches and the other one was like turning off his camera because he was too embarrassed. And they had both been getting all A's essentially before that. And it was just heartbreaking to, for me to see that they had no motivation. Their contact with their friends was gone. And yeah, we, so luckily we were able to move them to a private school, but obviously, yeah. as you know, not, not all parents, not most parents have that option. So. I mean, I think your story is a story that, um, you know, I've heard quite frequently, which is that, um, um, you know, I mean, it's natural that everyone will do what's best for their own children. I mean, that's just a that's just a natural thing. I think no one should be surprised that people do what's best for their children. And that means that, you know, if you have the means and the ability, um, people will put their kids into um, uh, in-person school. Um, and, you know, I think uh, that's true of most of my colleagues who have talked to me about this. And um, uh, that's true of, I think, a lot of people. Um, and, um, you know, I think you and I both recognize that... Um, it's also tougher on the kids that they don't have the parents don't have those kind of resources and and the school that will be left behind in the wake of all this um, is not going to be the same school as that was there before. Um, but we could talk about that a little bit later. I want to jump to um, I mean, I, so I think so I get a sense of like where you came from on this issue. And, and I guess I came from it the same way. You know, I uh, I guess my inclination was that, of course, kids would be spreaders. I mean, that's true of a lot of viruses. And of course, that would be the case. But then the more you look at the literature, if you um, just looked at it from a neutral vantage, um, you found that that was really not the case. And in fact, those contact tracing studies that came out of um, Europe were rather clear that they were half as likely to contract it when it was in the household. And then we just have a new study, seroprevalence in Germany, uh, came out in JAMA today, um, or maybe JAMA Internal Medicine. I'm, I'm, yeah, it was actually, it came out the 22nd of January, and it showed that the kids had a third of the antibodies uh, yeah. as, the, oh, right. as the adults did. Yes. Um, so explain that yeah, finding. That, that was yes. an interesting study. I mean, I don't think it really looked at the question of how much they yes, spread it. I, um, I think that was a little bit of a misunderstanding of that of that study and how they interpreted it. But but, you know, there's been a study that hasn't gotten a lot of press that was from Greece, where they looked at a bunch of family clusters. I think it was 36 families and there were 18 children involved who ended up being positive and not a single one spread it um, to anyone else. I see. And that's so that was more <laughs> that was interesting to me, too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but SARS-1, yes. interestingly enough, and that's been found to be the same way. And it also uses the ACE2 receptors to enter the cells. So that's, I, I don't know. I think it's something different um, about the SARS-1 and uh, 2 uh, viruses. So that's yeah. a good point. Um, I think um, two things jump out of me, the contact tracing studies. One is, of course, once somebody in the household has it, you can trace it to other people. And so that we know kids are perhaps likely to acquire it. And the other thing is just the paucity of the antecedent cases that are children. They're very, they're very few and far between of the, the identified case as a child. And the children that I think you are identifying are the ones with like rip roaring infections with high viral load. So I think that's makes some of these kind of interpretations of some of these studies difficult because some studies claim that they are more likely to spread it. But I'm saying that you're not looking at the average kid who's got an infection. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. Like they're looking at the kids that are sick and that's so few sick. kids yeah, get sick. Right. And so if we're only measuring those kids, of, I mean, if they even if they have the same as adults, then you would just be able to say, well, then on average, you know, yes. if only one percent of the kids are getting that sick, then probably most kids have much lower viral loads. But we just we don't we don't know that. Um, so but yeah, a lot of people are saying that kids 
are spreading it, you know, asymptomatically. And then we had that study from JAMA that shows that asymptomatic people are, you know, only spread at 0.7% of the time. And now we're having more surveillance testing studies. I don't know if you just saw this one that was released. It was from like Zenelman and he's from Johns Hopkins. It was just released like two days ago and they looked at 4,500 kids and they found that um, it was basically the same thing. There was no transmission from the kids to the teachers and very limited transmission among the kids, very similar to what we found, but they were just, they were doing testing, you know, uh, even when kids were asymptomatic right, and they right. found the same thing. Blind testing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to recall that one. I might have oh, seen it's it. really new if you didn't yeah, see it. Yeah, maybe I didn't see it. I guess the, I mean, I'm also tainted by, um, you know, there, there, there are some nice studies that look at what happens when schools close and open like that Germany study because they had the staggered vacation schedules. And that's one that I like to cite because I think it actually can disambiguate the interventions from, from the, um, the school closure and the opening. But let's put these aside for a second. I mean, I guess I, I want to go back to that moment in time. But in the fall, I think um, Europe had a different commitment than the U.S., Europe's commitment was to try to make it happen. The U.S.'s commitment was to try to stick a finger in Trump's eye, I think. That also, <laughs> I mean, explains to some degree the fact that the places that did open are places that vote strongly for Trump and places that didn't open are places that don't vote for Trump, um, which creates this whole other second order of re weird effects. Um, private schools opened. Children's daycare opened. And even in California, um, in-person daycare, in-person private schools, but public schools were not opened. And so a lot of data was coming out about, you know, a lot of these daycares are running nonstop without any problems all this time, right? So so there is this real-world data coming out even from our own state. Um, anyway, so this was the backdrop. Um, I think um, I got interested in the question and I started to cover it more. And I wanted to think about it in terms of trade-offs. They're trade-offs. I mean, I think I'm willing to say... You know, SARS-CoV-2 is not that much different than other respiratory viruses for children. I'm willing to say teachers do not have substantive higher risk of acquisition. I'm talking odds ratio two or higher. But do they have 1.3, 1.4, 1.2 odds ratio? I don't know the answer, but I think it's possible that it's slightly higher. But I think it can be mitigated. And I think it's not certainly less than taxi drivers, less than other people doing essential work. Um... So, I mean, that's one thing. That, and, and, and like when we're, these odds ratios are rather modest. I mean, we're not talking about tobacco and smoking, 20. You know, we're talking about in the one to two ballpark. Um, but, and then there's some studies that I think find no increased risk at all, um, the, the Sweden study. So I guess I'm willing to say there's a question mark there. Um, but you have to factor in the impact to all the constituencies. What is it doing to the children? What is it doing to the parents? What is it doing to society? What is it, do what is it doing to the teachers? Um, and, and when you look at that totality, I think, I think, you know, the answer is quite clear, but I want to jump to your recent study. Cause I think your recent study is, you know, it's part of the reason I reached out to you, but I also thought it was really, um, really well done study. Um, you went to, I mean, I don't know if you physically went there, but you worked with people in Wisconsin and you, and you took a look at what was going on in Wisconsin and Wisconsin made a concerted effort to get kids back in school in person. And there are some precautions they took. And then there was, and this is really what happened. The experiment of what happens when you take these precautions and the experiment went super well. And you published recently in the morbidity mortality weekly reports of the CDC and it got a lot of publicity. So I wonder if you might talk about your journey. How did you get involved in this project? What was the project and what did you find and, and that sort of stuff? Yes. So um, it started out 
as it was going to be a masking study, but also mm-hmm. looking at the prevalence of um, of SARS-CoV-2 in the school and how, you know, how many cases there were and then looking at how much spread there was in the school. And so um, I got involved in the study after it, has, it had already started. They were doing the data gathering and a, co- a friend um, who was also a physician mom got me, you know, connected to this uh, Amy Falk, who is an amazing doctor in Wisconsin, who took the initiative to do this study really without any funding or backing to do this. Um, and well, she applied for a grant to get masks. Um, she got $150,000. So wow. the kids in the study could have somewhere between three and five cloth masks. Okay. And then was going to look at, you know, how, uh, what the compliance was with wearing those masks. And I, my understanding from talking to her about it is part of the reason that the schools open opened was because she got this wow. rant. So they were kind of like a little bit on the fence about opening. And then, but it's interesting because it's really in the middle of Trump country, which I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, I it's a really conservative area of the yeah. state. And so I don't think that there was a lot of masking going on in this area. <laughs> Outside and, uh, of schools, right? I see what you're saying. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. And so um, for those people who haven't read the study, I mean, the prevalence of, uh, or the, the test positivity was rate ripper- was, 40 percent 40 percent four out of every rip i mean that's rip roaring right is rip roaring and i still i think about that and i think i still know there were a lot of people who are in the community who are not getting tested so you know i i'm sure there were people who are positive who weren't getting tested but knowing what i know about what was going on in wisconsin because my parents live in wisconsin i know that there was you know people weren't getting tested it was still kind of even this fall considered a hoax by a lot of people mm. um and uh so i don't know but it, but there were there were a high positivity rate during the study um and then but they were able to get the kids to mask which was which was really interesting i mean so they were we were compiling data about how often the kids were masking when they were in school. So it was greater than 90% of the time. It was the same for the elementary kids and the high school kids, which was also a surprise. So they were equally good at doing it. It was while they were indoors that we were figuring out if they were masking while they were outdoors. They actually, so it says in the study they had to mask, but that is only if they were within six feet of someone who was outside of their cohort. I see. So, yeah, so that's a little clarification of that. But um, and so um, I got involved with the with the research group because they were looking for someone to sort of guide them on how to how to, you know, how to uh, interpret the results and publish it and write it up. And, um, you know, so I was really fortunate to get connected with them because. I mean, I, I, like you, had been watching data come in from across our country that wasn't being published, that wasn't being peer reviewed. And it was, you know, the, the YMCA is published in the New York Times. They have all these kids and then and nobody publishes it. And then multiple school districts all over the United States are publishing that they were able to open successfully. But there there were no you know, the data was not available, the data were not available. And then, um, you know, no one would publish it, or, or no one would 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 write it up to get it published. Um, and I thought a lot about what you've been saying on your show about how there's not a lot of incentive for researchers to publish in this particular space, because, you know, they might view it as a risk. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, that they're taking a side or they're biased on yeah. something, or they, 
you know, they'll get in trouble with the with liberals if they post or if they, you know, have a study that suggests that, you know, schools should be open and might be able to be made safe. And, you know, I think you have a legitimate point there. And also really, um, who is out there that's an expert on COVID in schools? Like there's no one. We're all <laughs> we're all learning about yeah, this. That's together, so. Yeah, I think that that's a very important point. I think, I mean, I, I obviously I agree with both. I think there's professional disincentives to speak on this issue, even though it's probably one of the most important issues of a generation. And I think it will, history will view it as an important issue when all the harms of what they have done, these these long-term protracted closures um, start to manifest. People will say, what the hell did we do? Um, and, and then I think it will be, have broad repercussions in, a, in the population. Um, so I, I think I think there's that. And then I think we're not in a good moment. I mean, if you say anything, on Twitter, you've seen, I mean, this, there's a powerful forces on both sides uh, that are happy to denigrate. But let me, let me, let me say what one of the, I mean, there's a beautiful infographic of this. It says K through 12 schools have in-person learning with limited COVID spread. Um, they say you use masks. Um, they capped um, classes or cohorts at 11 to 12 students. Um, the distances were maintained. Um, you tell me between the cohorts, not necessarily within the cohorts. Um, and then there's quarantine after exposures. Teachers report 92% mask compliance in, the, in these groups. That's terrific. None of the teachers are vaccinated. It's important to state this is a non-vaccinated teacher group. Um, and, and within 13 weeks of in-person learning, 7 out of 4,800 students and 0 out of 654 staff were known to have gotten COVID-19 at school. And this was at a place where the weekly incidence was 34 to 1,000 per 100,000 persons in the community. That is, I mean, I don't think people fully appreciate that's a brisk. That's one of the brisk, <laughs> that's the briskest transmission in this country. I mean, it's a brisk transmission period. So I wonder if you might drill down a little bit on, you know, how did you all sort out if they got the COVID in the school versus out of the school? This is something that I see people always are critical of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, that was done through um, the state, the, the contact tracing through the public health yeah. department in in collaboration with the school by looking at where the, the 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 positives were that could have potentially, you know, infected that that person. And so um, we, you know, we did not have access to the to the the data that involved um, individuals um, because of the way that I, our IRB was. So we were relying on, you know, what the school and the public health department had come up with as where the cases were contracted. So that's really, you know, I can't say much. No, but that's fine. That. I mean, I think I think there's a few things that I'm going to emphasize. The public health department is not in cahoots with anyone to get schools open. They're doing the way they always do it. And the same people who say the contact tracing is not good in these studies, I hear them say that, they're the same people who say that contact tracing can get us to COVID zero. So they so it's got to be they got to believe in it at some point in their lives, right? Because I hear them saying if we shut down for a long period of time, then we did test, taste, isolate, and contact trace, we'll be able to go to COVID zero, and then we can reopen, have a party. Um, so if they say that then they certainly believe it's an effective strategy and then the last thing i'd say is i don't think these public health contact tracers are missing a huge school outbreak if all the kids in a class are getting sick and all their parents are sick these public health departments are going to figure out it happened in school but that didn't happen right i mean they're not the people who run this are good people and they know what they're doing and they've been doing this for a while um so i it, it for me it, i find it it's a disingenuous objection to your study to say, well, we don't know the contact tracing not that good because of these reasons. These are the same people who believe mightily in contact tracing. And I think 
it's unlikely to miss sort of if all the teachers in a in a school got it, you know, from having a break room meeting or something like that, you know, I think it would have shown up. But um, OK, so you're relying on that. Right. So. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, we if there were major outbreaks coming from schools, we I think we would be seeing them. And also it brings up the, the very important point that our study can't be looked at in isolation because there have been many studies that have shown the exact same thing as ours. And I just have to bring up the study that was done in North Carolina because yes, that was almost 100,000 right. yeah. um, students and staff. And yeah, exactly. JAMA Pediatrics. And they also found no child to student to teacher transmission that study. I think they had 78 cases out of 100,000 in that time. I mean, they had a lower prevalence than we did, but but they found the same thing. The study from Baltimore that just came out, you know, they were actually doing the surveillance testing. They also found the same thing, yeah. no student to staff transmission, very limited in the class. They they had, as and the same in our own school district. I actually just talked to our district superintendent today. We've had the same pattern where um, in our school district and another, and another or it's um, there, there was like a out of school party where kids got of infected. Course. So I've seen this twice now. Yeah. And so all the kids come in, but they don't actually pass it on further, but they're found yeah. to be positive in the school because they were like at a party or a sleepover or something. And I think my understanding of what happened at the Georgia camp was actually the same thing that, yes. that all the kids got exposed by actually because the counselors has had had a party the couple of days before that camp. Um, where they spread it to each other. So I've heard so, of different but, stories but yeah. about that Georgia summer camp. But I mean, let me make a different another way to look at this situation in both these states. I mean, in Wisconsin, when you reopen schools, case rates were as high as one in 100, which is insane. In North Carolina, it was one to two per thousand, which is also I describe as quite brisk. That's a brisk transmission. So if you've got two states with one in 100 COVID cases, dead, new di new diagnoses, one in a thousand. Um, why? What's the justification for closing schools? You've got rampant community trans transmission, and and so you're closing schools. You're not the, the rampant community transmission is still going on. So you're just punishing the kids who are not going to get that sick anyway while you're letting rampant community transmission go on. You see my point here? My point here oh, is yeah. is like <laughs> if there's rampant, you know, I mean, some of the some of the, I mean, one of the object, you know. I've seen people say these things about these school studies. They say that we, well, we can't trust. We can't. They never can trust anything that goes against their intuition. Of course, of course, that's a, okay. Well, you know, I had no intuition, and then I looked and I saw things like the Germany study, which I think are like pretty, pretty causal. But, but the other way to look at the question is this, which is if you're letting runaway community transmission occur in your state, then why not also open the schools so you get the benefit of schools? And and it's it's unlikely you you can go any faster than your foot all the way down on the accelerator pedal. You've already floored the car, right? You know what I mean? You're already having brisk transmission, and then the kids are half as likely to get it. This is not it's not gonna fuel it anymore. So closing the school while you have runaway transmission in a community, that's just spiting everybody. I mean, I don't see the value of that. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that even even more to that point, I would add that in some places we're seeing that kids are getting COVID you know, more outside of school yeah, when they're not and in, in school. And, and um, I, I, I can see as a parent why that is. And I think a lot of people who don't have kids don't understand why that is. And, tell me, but, and, and why do you think that's it? It's because they're hanging out by their well, friends. <laughs> well, actually it's not only that. So 
our our kids were were in a daycare uh-huh. to do their virtual learning, yes, and I they were in that. one room with forty kids. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um. And so, but and it wasn't just that. It's like then it then one of them didn't want to be in that daycare, so we moved him to a different daycare, and then so they were in two different daycares. Um. And so then they're like even more exposure, and then people are passing the kids around between parents and aunts and grandparents yeah. and. Um, and so kids, you know, if they're not, you know, 12 or older, they need to be somewhere while their parents are working. And so these families are like passing them around between everyone and they're going in if they, you know, they have to pay extra money to get them in daycares and, and well, all that, all that. So anyway, I can see how there would be increased exposure to these kids, you know, on average when they're not in school, if schools are so safe. I mean, in schools, you know, most of the schools that have been open and, and the school that our kids are in, you know, they treat all the kids like as if they're positive all the time. Uh, right. Yes. They're, they're very strict like, and they follow precautions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So, of course, the schools are, I don't know. Well, yeah, that's that's why I think it appears that schools might be safer for the average kid. Yeah. I just want to highlight one thing you said, which is something that people have told me and that I'm aware of going on in the Bay Area, which is that there are some private companies that are renting the school space so that the kids can go to the school literally so they can connect on Wi-Fi on their laptops so their parents can go to work, which is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, That's right. And they're very expensive, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is, there, is that the case? I don't, I don't know that to be the case. Yes, yeah. exactly. Are, so is it they're expensive? Kind of- Oh yeah, oh, I mean, okay. uh, you know the the ones I that I've read about, like, uh, well, even the YMCA was a thousand dollars a week per kid. Uh, a, week? a week? Was it a week or a month? Oh, <laughs> I think it was a month. Okay, it was a month. A thousand dollars a month per kid. Yeah, sorry. Um, a thousand a week. So it's, it's yeah, it's uh, it it's been so there is that concern that that people are you know making money off of the fact that they're you know watching these kids and it's it's it's. It's a tough situation for parents. So, yeah. So I guess, um, I mean, the takeaway message in your papers, of course, that it can be done. These things can't, they can be done. Seven out of about 5,000 students and zero out of 654 staff were, were known to have gotten COVID-19 at school based on the local public health contact tracing of that place. Um, I wonder if it might be, I mean, just some ideas for you. I don't know if you've investigated, but I mean, one thing that I'd be interested in is to know um, surveys of families of these kids. Like, what do they think about it? How many people in the families have gotten sick with COVID in this time? And of course, a lot of them got sick because it's been rip-roaring in the community anyway. Um, um, You know, and how do they feel about that? Um, um, Any thoughts for future work in this space? Um, yeah, so we're we're actually designing the next phase of the study right uh, now. So I, I'd love to hear your ideas, but okay. we are going to be doing surveillance testing and we're actually going to be looking at the, you know, if we get enough tests done, if we can find if the disease prevalence is high enough, which it probably won't be since no one seems to be getting infected in school would be to look at, you know, the difference between kids that are, you know, distance out six feet in the schools that have enough room and the, the kids that are not distance out. But honestly, I just don't think we're going to have the power to find a difference. Yeah, when I don't know if you'll have power. Cases, yeah. If cases are coming from schools, but um, yeah, but, but, but we're we talking about the six feet because, the, sorry, I mean, I just want to highlight to the listeners, the reason that you're interested in the six feet question is the six feet question is a serious barrier nationally to having schools reopen. 
Yes, that's right. And, and um, you know, I don't know if you would have been following along what the World Health Organization is saying, but they're saying one meter, which is 3.3 feet. Um, and so my understanding is in Europe, in most of Europe, that's what they've been following. Although England, UK has been has been um, one and a half meters. But um, yeah, I mean, we just don't really have solid data to know whether or not it needs to be six feet or three feet. But in our study, I will say that the elementary grades, they didn't have room to do the full six feet. So they basically used the space that they had within the cohorts and they just kind of spaced out the kids. So it was kind of, yeah. And I, I, I've been kind of outspoken about the fact that I think that our results can be applicable to urban school districts um, as well, um, that it, there was not as much space as the, uh, the publication might've made it sound like there was. So that's interesting. I guess I'm not an expert on these these topics but i guess i would say um i guess i would say that the truth is you know i mean i think people don't know a lot of the answers to these questions we don't know how far you need to keep them apart we don't know what's better i mean they're different alternatives instead of keeping them apart maybe you'll just commit to the fact that once they're in the same class let them be kids like a normal class just let them have normal class um and, and then separate make the classes absolutely segregated from each other uh, or separated from each other you know totally in their own bubble so the classes don't cross each classes that way if anything happens in one class the whole class is shut down and then make the classes as small as you can so take the teacher spread them out make them i don't know seven kids 11 kids 12 kids whatever you can budget um and separate it and then keep and let those kids be kids within the group i mean th i'm not saying this is this is the answer i'm saying this is a hypothesis to test the other thing i i'm very interested in thinking about Again, I don't think anyone knows the answer, but the thing I'm interested in thinking about is that um, um, what is the stopping rule? And if the stopping rule is anybody in the class has anybody in their house who has COVID, that's a pretty brisk stopping rule. You're going to be stopping all the time, especially in places with rip-roaring community spread. Um, if the stopping rule is anybody has an asymptomatic detection of PCR positivity, I'm not sure that's the right stopping rule either. I think the stopping rule has to be somebody in that class or the bubble around the class, the parents and the people who touch those, you know, spend time with these kids, they are actually getting sick. Um, and if two people in this bubble get sick, then I think it's suggestive that something's going on in that class. Maybe that's how they it's been spread. Um, but I guess I think that, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I do know uh that there has to be a will. There's no political will to open these schools. And if I were getting paid to sit at home and be on Zoom all day and never have to go to work, I can see the appeal of it. Uh, but unfortunately, I have, a, I have to actually go to work and do it. Um, and, and I do it, and I'm sure I'm at slightly higher risk than somebody who didn't have to go to work. Um, and in my personal case, I actually was applying for California medical license. I was starting during the time of COVID. And I, I pushed them very hard to get that license as fast as possible because I felt... Uh, moral urgency to get back to my healthcare providing. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I don't have all the answers either. Okay. You know, I, I've been studying this and, and I can report the science and I can report what the studies has been, have been showing, but that doesn't mean you have every answer about how every school should open. And I, but I totally agree that people have not been coming together on this issue to discuss how to make it happen in the best way possible. Like, you know, and, and not in the public schools, I would say in in our private school situation, you know, the parents and the um, the the school administrators and people have been coming together and looking at the science and talking about, you know, how can we make this work 
you know, for the kids, for the, for the staff. And we're missing that dialogue, you know, with, with teachers and with in the public school system and with the openings with that. And, you know, teachers are really, and, and public school, um, you know, employees are really an outlier in this. And that's the whole strange thing that's been going on is, you know, most professions, everyone goes back to work, obviously, because like they don't have a choice, otherwise they're going to lose their job. And, and because of that fact, every workplace has been really struggling to figure out how to make things as safe as possible. But that, that struggle, you know, it hasn't even started in the public schools. And, and it's very disappointing because obviously you and I don't don't have all the answers, you know, discussing this. We're yeah, <laughs> we, we don't work in school. So <laughs> yeah, can't. I guess um, I don't have all the answers, but I have a few answers, which is one, I think that um, the risk benefit favors opening the schools. You got to, you got to, it, it's not, not should we do it? It's how can we do it? How can mm-hmm. we do it? You have to create, do it in a way that you're learning as you do it. So you're trying new things and you're trying one thing at a time so you can see what it does before you switch all the things. Um, that's been a mistake throughout this pandemic. You have to commit to doing it and you have to th- figure out how to do it. And then I think we have to get off this delusion that there's this world of zero risk. There's never a world of zero risk. There's always risks when you send your kids to school, there's always really, anytime you get off the couch, there's a risk. The question is what risks are acceptable? And these risks to the children are roughly acceptable. To the people who work there, I think um, my hat is off to them. I think they've, I've, my hat was off to them before. I mean, I think being a teacher is a tough job, um, depending on, on the particular students you have to, t- you have to teach. Um, but it's an essential job. It's a job that gives you real self-worth. It gives you value. And you know what? In this world, a lot of people wish they had a job where you felt really good about what you did at the end of the day. And I, I'm sure I'm, I'm confident you'd feel good about working with kids if you do that every day. Just like, you know, I'm grateful to have my job where I take care of people um, because I think it provides some modest benefit in this world. Um, so I think the teachers have to be committed to doing it. I think we could tell, have a whole other hour about the unions. Um, your study, I think, is very helpful. I mean... People can um, be critical of different parts of the study, but the one thing you can't be critical of is you actually did this. You actually did this. You actually did this at this period of time, and this is what happened. You didn't have one whole classroom of people have everyone die in it. You didn't have that. You know, you you you've excluded some things. You know, you didn't have all these things that people fear uh, could happen did not happen. Um, you have documented a certain rate based on the available public health institutions that were segregated from the investigators, so there is no crosstalk there. Um, it is what it is. That is that is the way in which contact tracing works. And for the people who believe that contact tracing will get us to the zero COVID world, that I'm not. I say that with some skepticism. I don't think we're going to get there. Um, you know, this is the this is the instrument that you want to use. And the last thing I'd say is maybe tomorrow we're talking right now on um, February second, but on February third, my I have an article coming about like, do we need the kids to be vaccinated before school can open? And I find it to be a ludicrous proposition for many reasons. But one reason is it's not going to happen until probably twenty twenty two, and you can't afford to close the schools any longer. And then I guess the last thought I'll, ha- I'll leave you with, and then I'll let you have the last word. But the last thought I'll leave you with is, um, I think, um, you know, I know there, the, Twitter has its own view of where people are psychologically, but I, but I talk to lots of people from all around the country, and I have a different view of where they are psychologically. And I think where people are, are psychologically is that they want to move to normalcy in a, in, in a risk-mitigated way. 
we got to get back to doing these things like having schools and having some businesses and having some operations in a normal way, but we're willing to take some precautions. And if we continue to draw this line saying that we're not going to go back to normal, we're going to stay in this pause, this, um, I think increasingly people will not take it. I mean, I, I feel frustration among everyone I talk to across the political spectrum, uh, from rural to urban, West Coast to East Coast. The only place that I see a different philosophy is on Twitter, where they have a very um, risk-averse view of the world. They don't want to talk about trade-offs. They only want to talk about absolutism. Um, but absolutism is always, I think, uh, flawed in all its forms. Uh, I'll leave you with the last word. So any final thoughts on this topic? Yeah. Oh, gosh, there was so much there. Uh, very A lot of good stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, OK, so so with I want to talk about teachers first. And I just yeah. want to say that, you know, I have so much respect for teachers, too. And I had really hoped with doing, you know, the research study and all the research that I've been doing that that this would be helpful to teachers, that it would be reassuring that they would, you know, be want, you know, I think a lot of teachers want to get back into the classroom. And, you know, I, I don't know, I think that there there are a lot of barriers that are being created by this, you know, the fear narrative that's spreading around. And I, I also respect, you know, teachers for being afraid, but I, I do think it's, you know, it's stopping things from progressing with this discussion. And, you know, I think that teachers, if there are any teachers listening, you know, I just, you know, I would say that I have so much respect for teachers and what they do and that, you know, they should be, you know, reassured by, by the data of our study and that, the, you know, kids are not spreading it like we were fearing. Um, and then, you know, I would just also say that um, we have to look at other countries um, and what they're doing and why they might be taking care of kids the way that they are. Um, and because it, you know, even in the UK, I heard that they said today that they're going to be reopening their schools right. with the new variant. Um, and that has kind of been the attitude all along that the schools have to be, you know, the the, mm. the last thing to close. And and in the US, I really think that we're getting that wrong. And kids cannot speak up for themselves. Um, and so we have to remember that when they're suffering and they're not able to be in school and play sports and things like that, that, you know, we're not always hearing that that side of the story. And, you know, I think in medicine, we're used to kind of standing up for vulnerable and people who don't have voices. So I think we all have to remember that that might be why most other, uh, well, all of their first world countries are are prioritizing opening the schools because they realize how important it is for kids. So, yeah. Dr. Hogue, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for, for this really interesting paper and for the discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.